Hello and welcome to the 94 Feet Report Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Eric Spiropoulos. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric Spiros, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at the 94 Feet Report. If you missed our previous episode uh, last week, we were talking with Duncan Smith about previewing the draft and free agency. So check that out for a really uh, nice, lengthy basketball conversation about what we think could happen in free agency, some random NBA topics and trends. So check that out on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, or on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, in today's episode of the podcast, we're joined by Adam Cribley, who is an author of a book called Tall Tales and Short Shorts, Dr. J, Pistol Pete, and the Birth of the Modern NBA, uh, a book that details the NBA in the 1970s, the various problems that it encountered, the various stars that played there, and just a lot of things that happened, the ABA merger in, in the 1976 season, and the introduction of the three-point line in the 79-80 season. Um, so a very interesting conversation with Adam about his process in writing the book, why he wanted to write the book, um, and then we eventually dive into the content of the book and things that happened in the NBA in the 1970s, a decade that had a lot of parity, a lot of teams winning championships, um, a lot of star players, um, a lot of you know potentially drug issues, uh, a decrease in popularity uh, in both attendance and TV ratings, just a lot of things that encompassed and, and occurred in the, in the NBA in the 1970s, so a very interesting conversation with Adam. But before we get into that, I just want to remind everyone, this podcast will be going up on Monday, June 26, excuse me, um, and that means July 1st, the first day of free agency, we will be launching the 94 Feet Report website. Um, we are transforming this pod- podcast into a full-fledged website with other written content and other podcasts included. So over the past month, I've been recruiting a team. I've got a great team of some writers, some podcasters, some editors. We will be launching a website. We'll have articles. We're going to have podcasts. We're going to do social media integration. So follow the site on Twitter at the 94 Feet Report or follow me on Twitter at Eric Spiros because I've been throwing out teasers. I've been throwing out information. And as we get closer to our July 1st launch, I'm going to be throwing out um, where to follow our writers and where to follow our team and then eventually we'll be throwing out some information on how to join our team after the first couple weeks so we're launching july 1st at at midnight eastern standard time exactly when free agency starts so follow the site at the 94 feet report and follow me at eric spiros for information on that with that being said let's get into our conversation with adam cribley to talk about the nba in the 1970s all right, we are now joined by Adam Cribley, the author of a new book titled Tall Tales and Short Shorts, Dr. J, Pistol Pete, and the Birth of the Modern MBA. Adam, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Eric? Doing pretty well myself, trying to keep up with the uh, hecticness that is the NBA offseason so far. Uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about the 1970s, uh, an interesting, often overlooked time in the NBA's history, at least in my opinion, from a lot of people. Um, but you obviously took the time to research, to write this book. Um, my first question, just right off the bat, because I'm just interested, why did you want to write this book? What was your you know, motivation and inspiration behind writing about the NBA in the 1970s? Well, so I'm, I've been a huge basketball fan my whole life, and growing up, I, you know, I grew up in the era of the Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan NBA, and even then, it was, it was as if you know, they, were the, they were the people who had started the NBA, uh, and as I got a little older, I heard stories about Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain and kind of the, if you want to call the 80s, the golden age. I heard about the silver age of the 60s when you had Oscar Robertson averaging a triple-double and almost these, these mythic legend, legendary characters. And as I got older and, and started to mature a little bit, I, I thought, you know, what about what happened in between there? What happened between, you know, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson coming into the league in 1980 and Bill Russell in 1969? And what what happened in that decade? And as, as it happened, I, I ran across a book by Dan Epstein, who writes, um, among other things, he, he's written two excellent books about baseball in the 1970s. 
And so I'm reading his book, and, and I really enjoyed it, and I thought, that, wow, this is great. Let me see if there's anything similar about the NBA in the 1970s. And, and I looked, and there really wasn't. There were some individual season recaps and some good player biographies, but nothing that really kind of uh, encapsulated or covered the, the entire decade. And so, uh, you know, being, uh, although this isn't my first book, uh, still a little naive as to what it would take, um, I started researching and writing, and I think four years later, it's it's in print. So yeah, so you mentioned four years. So did you? Um, how so you? How long did it take for you to kind of? So you got the idea. You figured, oh, there's not really anything about the NBA in general in the 1970s. There are a couple of things here and there, chapter in this book, chapter in that book, etc. Um, so when you got the idea, did you just right off the bat, you know, start researching, or did you kind of, you know, talk with other people to see if this would be a good idea, or did you just get right into it, into researching, and, and eventually starting to write? You know, I started researching first, actually, before I really got involved with talking to people that had written similar things about basketball history, and it began as somewhat of a, just a hobby. You know, in the evenings, I'd, I'd read some basketball history or watch an old game film or something, and then I got pretty serious about it, oh, in September of 2013, and at that point, I started reaching out. Um, I'm a history professor, so I, I have some friends that, that do sport history, and I reached out to some of them and took the idea off of them before I got too deep, and and they all said, you know, hey, this sounds like a great idea, um, and encouraged me to, to work on it and to write it. I began attending some sports history-related conferences and got some great feedback from, from some colleagues there, made some great contacts there, and, and it kind of snowballed. So actually, I began the research before I, I really bounced it off colleagues, but they've been uh, incredibly helpful in the, you know, in the couple years since. And what were your kind of... You know, besides obviously, I guess your colleagues were obviously a huge, uh, you know, benefit to your research. But did you? What other tools did you use to research? Um, you know, the, the NBA in the 1970s. Did you talk? Did you try and contact? You know, specific players that played during that time, executives, coaches, or something like that. Or did you stick to professors and kind of what you could find in other books and on the internet? So I decided for this book not to reach out to former players, um, and I did that for a, a specific reason that. Unless you really get in depth with a player about a topic and spend a couple hours talking to them, they, you know, players even from the '70s are so used to giving the the same answers uh, that that it almost becomes, you know, it, for the most part, it, it's it, it doesn't really help the the narrative. So, for example, if you ask somebody who played for the Celtics in the '70s, hey, what was it like when the team went from NBA champs to cellar dwellers in two years, and then they typically give kind of the the stock answer, you know, it was rough, but we played hard and. You know, you just don't get a lot from that. So I decided that instead of spending a lot of time doing interviews, which I certainly could have done, that instead I, you know, I, I did some internet research, but I spent a lot of time in old newspapers and old magazines. Mm-hmm. So I, I went through the entire run of uh, Sports Illustrated from the '70s, the Sporting News, Sport Magazine, the New York Times. I went through the entire, you know, the entire decade uh, of of those newspapers. And, uh, and newspapers to magazines, and so I was able to use that as my as my source material. And then I took a couple of research trips. I went to Notre Dame has a, an amazing sports history archive, so I spent some time there. And I went to the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame up in Springfield, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and spent a couple of days there doing research. So I didn't I didn't really spend much time uh, talking to to players. I, I I did make a couple phone calls afterwards to just follow up with with some of them. So I I was able to talk to. Uh, for example, Dave Cowens, Bob McAdoo, a couple other big names. Um, but that was kind of after the writing had, had been already been done. 
Yeah, I think it's a, a nice conscious decision to kind of avoid the players when you kind of already know that they're not really going to give anything fresh to the book. Might as well devote your time to doing all that intense research to find out about this unique uh, but important decade in, in the NBA. So let's let's move on to the actual content within the book and, and the NBA in the 1970s because there is a whole lot to uh, digest um, if people are not familiar with the NBA in the 1970s. I guess my first question right off the bat, you know, you did all this research, you wrote the book, it's out now. How do you best remember the NBA in the 1970s? Well, it's almost cliche to, to call it this, but the NBA was a decade of parody in the 1970s. And there was no one dynasty. There was no one team that, that really had a run of more than two or three years. And you think of the modern NBA, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of disgruntled fans mm-hmm. that are just kind of even throwing up their hands about next year, and the Golden State Warriors are just going to win it again, and why should my team even try uh, the 1970s was the complete opposite of that. So every season it seemed like a team would come from nowhere to at least make the conference finals. And that's just something you really don't see in today's game. So I think that that openness, that fluidity, the sense that any team literally any year could could kind of rise up, uh, that was what I, I think many people best remember if they remember anything about the 70s. But that, you know, so on one hand it's the decade of parody. And the other way, and this is in the subtitle of the book, is that really see in the 1970s a lot of things put in place that are going to elevate the game uh, in the 1980s. And so those are my the, the two things I really take away is that it's this decade of parody. Any team, any season could, could make a run. And then the idea that it really starts to set the stage for the arrival of Magic and Bird in 1980. Yeah, and the parody thing is really just kind of the most interesting and you know one of the biggest takeaways. Um, I think for a lot of people who aren't familiar with how much parody there was in the 1970s, you had eight different champions in in the 10 years in the 1970s. Um, and then, you know, you had a couple of repeat champions, but they weren't, you know, back to back. You didn't have the same teams making the finals. You know, for example, the, the Cavs and Warriors could make even the, maybe the next two finals and, and certainly are definitely the favorites to make next year's final. So that could be their fourth straight finals together. Um, and people are obviously, as you mentioned earlier, you know, why bother with my team competing when the Warriors could be stacked to win the next three championships if they stay healthy and they keep their guys um, and if egos they don't get in the way but for someone growing up watching the NBA in the 70s and you know and, and is still alive watching the NBA today they're really you know watching a league that has suffered some serious pa- uh, parody concerns and you know fans are going to getting angry and you know we've seen that the ratings have actually been you know improving this year compared to last year's finals but you know I'm I'm of the opinion that once we start seeing the same finals matchup for the fourth straight time and maybe even the fifth straight time, I think the ratings are going are gonna to go down. But obviously that's not a problem that the NBA had in the 70s with eight different champions in 10 years. Um, but you mentioned also building blocks for the modern NBA and, and you know, the game you know, in, the, in the 80s. Um, you know, we had the ABA merger following the 76 season and then we had the, the invention of, or the adaptation of the three-point line in the 79-80 season. Can you just you know, talk about those two significant events in NBA history and how they kind of changed and shaped the modern NBA. Yeah, so the 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 narrative that that's usually presented about the NBA is that it was basically on on death's doorstep, and then in 1980, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird come in and they saved the league and they revolutionized the game. And you know, while taking nothing away from those players, or of course Michael Jordan or any of the others that came along in the 80s, I think that it's um, it's it's kind of backwards thinking to to think that in 1980 is, is that transition. To me, it really was 1976. When the league adds Julius Irving, who, by the way, of course, wins a title in the Magic Bird era, and, um, you know, uh, along, of course, with, with Moses Malone in 83, 
but once once he joins the league, you have as well the the the, the Spurs with George Gervin, the the Nuggets with um, Dan Issel and, and David Thompson, uh, my beloved Indiana Pacers with pretty much nobody. Uh, but you have this you have the the merger that that expands the league. It it has uh, a much more up tempo, fast paced kind of playground style to it. In uh, you know following the 76-77 merger, and so you have this the beginnings of a change league. And of course, the ABA players play a different style. Um, mm-hmm. The NBA at the time was a very center-dominated league. You threw the ball into the center, uh, and, he, and he was really orchestrating the offense. The, you know, Obviously, some of the centers were excellent scorers, but other teams would throw it into the center, and that was just who kind of initiated their offense. The ABA was far more likely to go up and down the court to throw the ball to wings who would attack the rim. Uh, or point guards attacking the rim, and so that was they. They brought a unique style to the game, and of course, you see in the 1980s, while there are still dominant centers, many of the teams are um, are led by these you know forwards and guards. The of course the Lakers and Celtics being the base the best examples of that, and so that that merger kind of brings that style of play, um, and then also the three point line doesn't come in until the end of the decade, and in fact is is almost an afterthought for most teams until about 83 mm-hmm. or 84. Uh, and in fact, if you watch game film from when the when the three point line is first introduced, it's it's really a desperation. You know, if somebody's shooting a three pointer, they're down by a lot at the end of the game, or it's a it's a half court heave. There are very few players that actually are are confident and looking for three pointers. But it, it of course sets in motion this changing game. Um, and so, to me, the you know the merger and the three point line alone are are pretty significant uh, building blocks, as you put it, for the modern NBA. Yeah, I think that they're you know. You know, people do talk about the the adaptation of the three point line, you know, somewhat. Um, but for you know a shot now that is so important, I mean, it's almost impossible to be a really good team in the NBA when you if you have poor shooting on your team. You need to ha- be able you know to hit threes. Um, you, obviously, the biggest example is the Golden State Warriors. The Cavs shoot a lot of threes. The Houston Rockets, with their analytical movement, shoot a lot of threes, and it's been paying off for all those you know those teams right now. Um, but people don't really talk about the adaptation of the three point line and, and specifically kind of the reaction to introducing the three point line in the NBA. A lot of people thought it was a gimmick, as you mentioned, a kind of a desperation shot. It wasn't really really taken seriously and used until you said the 83 season so i think it's interesting that people don't really discuss the introduction and reaction to the three-point line in the 79 80 season um and of course the aba merger kind of opened up the nba but even with those events you know there was a decrease in popularity in the nba kind of especially towards the end of that decade there was poor attendance and, and ratings um and obviously there were some drug issues which you know some were warranted some were unwarranted I'd love to know if you could shed some light on kind of the decrease in popularity in the NBA, and obviously they eventually, you know, rebounded with, you know, the 80s with the Lakers and Celtics dominating with each team, you know, at least one of them team making the finals every single year, which is honestly ridiculous now that I think about it. Um, but just speak to the decrease in popularity of the NBA and kind of the issues that kind of led to that decrease in popularity. Well, I think there were a lot of reasons for a, for a decrease in popularity, and um, I, I think that you can't point to any one thing. So... I've, I've written about the fact that the league is becoming more dominated by African-American players. And so that does turn off some white fans in the late 70s. Uh, the league's becoming, the, the players are becoming wealthier uh, because of free agency, which is, of course, a great thing for players. Mm-hmm. But fans, there's that, there begins to become a disconnect. You know, in the early 70s, the players didn't make that much more than kind of average Joe and now they're making you know now they're making up to a million dollars a season by the end of the uh, end of the 70s and into the 80s 
and that's just you know that's a different plane. They they're they become celebrities of the sort that you just can't um, uh, you can't you can't sympathize with you can't uh, you can't equate yourself with. Um, they just become their own kind of strata, and so that's part of it. Um, you know the the league's becoming more dominated by African Americans. The the salaries are increasing. You also and something that I think is is under um, underpresented as far as that goes is that if you look at the teams the the markets that it had significant teams in the early 70s. So the early 70s is dominated by the the Lakers, the Knicks, uh, the Bulls are a very good team. The Milwaukee Bucks are as well. But if you look, I mean, of those four teams, you know, those are four of the most consistent teams in the early 70s, probably along with, with Baltimore. Uh, and those are big markets. Those are the NBA's three biggest markets. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the 70s, Kareem, is, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is playing in L.A., but they're not particularly competing for championships. Chicago and uh, and New York, along with Boston, really, are all pretty much dumpster fires in the late 70s. And so you have now the NBA's biggest markets, their their most popular, prominent teams, are all doing poorly. And I think that a lot of that's reflected in the, uh, especially in the in the ratings on television. No one wants to tune in to a, a Kansas City Kings versus Phoenix Suns game on a Sunday. Although those those two teams might be pretty good. Uh, instead, they'd, they'd really like to watch Celtics-Knicks, but those teams are so terrible that, that it's not good basketball. And so I think that a lot of that is the case. And this is also in the era when cable TV is just coming in. So you know, why, why go to the game when you can actually just sit at home and watch it on your, on your cable TV? Uh, so I, a lot of those have to do with, and obviously that, that has to do with, with uh, attendance, uh, not ratings. And the other thing I think you mentioned was drug issues. And that is certainly uh, a problem in the late 70s. Now, this is one thing we're talking to ex-players. I, I've talked to a, you know, a couple dozen since, since this book um, finished, really. But all, you know, almost universally, they say, oh, there, was, yeah, there, was, there were some people using drugs, but not in my locker room. Well, I've mm-hmm. talked to guys on six or seven teams, and if nobody was using drugs, mm-hmm. then uh, uh, somebody's lying. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. or, or just was ignorant, didn't know what was going on, naive, maybe. And so there were there were drug problems, um, and I think that that's really reflected uh, in the late the latest part of the '70s and into the '80s. And so I think all of those things together, you know, it's it's a long answer, but I really can't point to one reason why the NBA does have a decrease in popularity and attendance and ratings. Uh, but I really think it's all of those things kind of put together. Yeah, and usually when, uh, especially a sports league has a, a serious decrease in popularity, it's usually not just one factor. You know, usually it's a multiple factors to kind of turn off multiple, you know, um, groups of people. Um, but yeah, going just touching on that drug issue, I think um, in the first part, I'm not sure if you've seen it in the thirty, the recent 30 for 30 about the Celtics and Lakers in part one, before they actually get to the rivalry, they're talking about the late 70s before um, the Lakers and Celtics start taking over. And they were talking about how the, the drug issues were perceived by the public to be a real real problem and a real turnoff but in the end you know they talked to some players in interviews and you know as you just mentioned someone's got to be lying but in those interviews you know that some of the players said yeah there was a problem but it was you know misleading or not perceived right or not you know you know communicated right and it really wasn't that big of a problem as people talk about it um i just remember reading uh there are some some chapters in bill simmons book of basketball that you know covers players that played in the 70s and 80s and he almost every paragraph would, would mention the drug issue so you know, it remains to be seen how much of a problem that actually was, but it certainly did not help the league in terms of popularity and ratings and attendance and, and their perception uh, among fans and people. Um, one thing, one thing yeah. I also think is happening is that you know, I, I would argue there's still a drug problem in the league today. It's not cocaine, though. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's happening in the early 80s is that 
these these um, these basketball players are becoming uh, closer linked or, or, or feeling more like celebrities and actors. And if you look at Hollywood in the early 80s and late 70s, there's also a lot of drug use. Uh, but again, it's not marijuana; it's cocaine. Uh, and there's a difference between someone who has, who you know, who's using marijuana regularly versus someone who's using cocaine regularly. And I think that that's a lot of what comes out in the in the you know in the early 70s. The uh, there were a lot of drug users, um, but as as I think Dave DeBusher famously has a quote, it was it was beer and scotch. Those were the drugs that they were using. Uh, by the you know by the by the 80s they're they're using uh, using cocaine and then you know I, I would say that obviously there are issues in the modern NBA with marijuana but if you look at those I think cocaine's obviously the most problematic and I think that that obviously had something to do with it here as well. Yeah, that's an important distinction. Something that you know people don't really talk about or mention is you know the distinction between the drugs that are being used because obviously drugs are still being used they will always be used but the difference between cocaine and marijuana is certainly something that's significant enough to kind of. Uh, differentiate the drug use in today's NBA versus those in the in the seventies and eighties. Um, so I'd like to just kind of talk about you know the contributions from some of the all time players that are in the seventies and obviously mentioned in your book. Obviously you got Pistol Pete um, and Dr. J in your title, so they're you know they're two headlining names of that decade slash era. Um, I just kind of get your thoughts. You know after doing all this research, uh, my first question is: Did you kind of look to watch up like game film on these players just to see you know the type of you know, game action in the seventies. I did, and actually, that was probably the most fun part of the whole mm-hmm. book. Um, it, it it allowed me to justify watching hours and hours and hours of you know old NBA game film, and I take notes on some of it, but most of the notes didn't make the book. It was just it was more of giving me a feeling. So I picked up little things when I watched game film, like uh, Rick Barry is a great example. You know, Rick Barry is just raked over the coals in Simmons' book, and and rightfully so in some ways. And and there are times I take him to task in my book. But if you watch him, he is one of the most cerebral, one of the smartest players. One thing that I picked up on is that if he would catch a pass on a fast break, uh, a lot of times he would actually catch it in, in the air. So if he's running in for a layup, he wouldn't catch it and then take a step. He would catch it on like his elevation step and elevate for a layup. And it was just usually enough that the defender would be a split second slow trying to block the shot or make a steal. And So I picked up little things like that. Um, I was able to, to track down quite a bit of game film. Um, you know, both good and bad from the decade. Uh, some of the you know playoff series, but also just some of the regular season games, and you could really see the 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 the, the players um, stand out and and how much harder and just like in today's NBA, how much harder they played during the playoffs versus the regular season, and and so some of those things stayed consistent, but uh, definitely players stood out and and just amazed me at how 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 skilled they were. So after watching some of this various game film and, and plays and players, did you kind of ever kind of develop a favorite player to watch that you know kind of dominated the '70s out of those kind of all-time greats? Well, I did. Uh, you know, Dr. J is hard to argue with. Is just being so much fun to watch. That '76, '77, '78, those couple seasons in there with um, with he and George McGinnis at the forwards, uh, with World Be Free at a guard, with uh, you know other players, but also. Daryl Dawkins playing center, Doug Collins at guard. Um, those were really fun teams to watch, and you watch Julius Irving from the '70s, and it's you know you just don't recognize. He, he was an amazing athlete, obviously, and still a great player into the '80s. But mid '70s, Julius Irving just could just could go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was super fun to watch. Uh, healthy Bill Walton was great to watch mm-hmm. in his prime. You know where he was just a so talented, uh, being able to handle the ball. Um, block shots, you know, he played at both ends. 
Uh, Pistol Pete obviously was a lot of fun to watch. Uh, watching from a you know obviously a more modern eye, he wasn't the most efficient player. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that you know the, the Rockets would hate him uh, mm-hmm. because you know he's he's uh, he's not efficient. His 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 game was really you know he could shoot obviously what would be a three pointer, but he was best really on on pulling up and transition uh, and as a playmaker. So some of those guys stood out. Uh, there were also some players that you know I I, I watched a lot of that. Um, they, they kind of surprised me. I, I really liked watching John Havlicek, Dave Cowens. Those guys just played so hard, uh, and and Cowens especially just played with a fire that that was pretty rare. And even in the regular season games, he just got after it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those were, those guys were a lot of fun. Uh, and then really the the best play of the decade was pretty clear. And and from game one when I you know I started watching uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar mm-hmm. from his his very first game I think is available on. Um, through NBA League Pass, or it was, and so from from day one, he just was clearly the the best player in the league. So a couple of those guys stood out. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed, like I said, the I really started to enjoy the late '70s and the the Sixers and the and the Trailblazers from from that era. Uh, I really enjoyed you know, the '72 Lakers, the '71 Bucks, all those all those great teams, um, and and enjoyed watching the train wreck that was the 1973 76ers that mm-hmm. won nine games. <laughs> uh, so, so all sorts of things, but stood out. Uh, but definitely, some of those players really kind of caught my attention. Yes, yeah, certainly. So while we're still, you just mentioned Kareem before. I had another question related to some of the top players, but I just want to get your take specifically talking about Kareem. This is kind of a question that encompasses modern NBA and, and obviously historical uh, players and events. So. You know, people obviously always will always talk about the greatest of all time discussion, especially now that we have a player, LeBron James, who many consider to be the, the greatest of all time, and least, you know, the majority of people would consider him top two or top three. I'm always of the opinion that Kareem does not get discussed enough in the greatest of all time discussion. And since you obviously did all this research, watch all these games of Kareem and kind of have a really good sense of, of Kareem in his prime, I'd love to get your take on where he ranks on your greatest of all time rankings, you know, between Jordan and LeBron and some other players like Magic Johnson. I put I, I put Kareem and like you, I'm I'm not a guy that likes to rank, but if I'm if I'm putting him um, if I'm ranking him, he's the best center to ever play the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, you know, anybody that, that their impression of Kareem is him, you know, kind of huffing up and down the court in 1986, uh, you know, occasionally throwing in the sky hook. You know, bald, bald goggle Kareem mm-hmm. is not prime Kareem. Yeah. And I think in some ways he would have been better served if, you know, if you're looking at his legacy, I think he almost would have been better served if he retired in 1982 or sometime a little earlier than he did because I think that. The NBA exploded in popularity in the 80s, and so we saw the Bird-Johnson rivalry, and then Kareem was a was kind of almost an afterthought. Like he was still he was still an all-star, but he was the uh, he was the the old guy with the the crafty moves. Mm-hmm. If you watch young Kareem, not only was he one of the fastest players on the court, uh, but he was a dominant def- defensive player, uh, blocking shots, intimidating, getting every rebound. He could pass. He could score. Uh, he could score in the post. He could score on you know some short jump shots. He just was was dominant, and that uh, I think maybe some of his legacy is tarnished by the fact that he only won one ring before coming to the Lakers, uh, and and then only started you know he won one ring pre Magic, but that I, I think he has to be considered the the best center ever just because both ends of the court obviously the way he could score uh, and before block shots were a statistic that was kept he was one of the the best shot blockers in the league, and so I think that. 
he really suffered from when he played and maybe even played a little long. But, yeah, give, give me Kareem at center any day. <laughs> yeah, I have to agree with you. And I think it was – I can't remember. I'm just, I just finished watching the 30 for 30 in the Lakers Celtics. That's why I keep bringing it up. And obviously we're talking about Kareem. But it is interesting to see or would have been interesting to see if he had retired, say, in like 82 or something. Because I think it was 84 or 85 finals where he just had a horrible game one and there were everyone in the media and the fans and, you know, even some players were just blasting him for, you know, he's too old, he's finished, he's, you know, he's useless. And then I think he comes back like in game two and just has like 30 points and 14 rebounds and and something ridiculous. And then, you know, he ends up having a really great closeout game uh, in Boston in game six. Um I can't remember if it's 84, 85, but it does speak to it. It's interesting, you know, obviously legacies can be defined by only one or two decisions. So if he had retired, say, earlier in his career, it would have been interesting to see how he would have been perceived. But I have to agree with you. I think he's uh, obviously the greatest center of all time. Just, I mean, that skyhook is unstoppable. I mean, you really can't stop it. And he could throw it in left-handed. He could throw it in right-handed. Um, the only person I ever saw block it was Wilt Chamberlain. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a great shot of Chamberlain. Chamberlain would be the only other person I would put in that conversation for best center of all time, just because he was ridiculous. I mean, he, he was a man among boys, and it's hard to it's hard to maybe imagine him in a different era. You know, maybe he wouldn't have been so physically dominant of playing in the '80s or '90s, but he's the only person that I think could could have hung with Kareem in his prime. Yeah, and we can. It, it was always fun to talk about hypotheticals and stuff like that. We'd probably go on for hours about talking about hypotheticals, especially if uh, Chamberlain had played in a different era of, of basketball. So going back just to the top players that I mentioned, you know, the Dr. J, Pistol Pete, Kareem, the Bill Waltons, and stuff like that. Uh, do you think that there were maybe one or two players that really stood out in terms of helping grow the league in terms of popularity, both with their skill set and maybe what they did off the court? Because you know, Kareem was a, a really reserved guy especially with the media um so that kind of could turn him off from a lot of people obviously you know you mentioned that the league was increasingly being uh, dominated by african-americans and that turned off people naturally but you know there still was some some uh star white players that were you know marketable and and you know obviously special talent so do you think that maybe there were one or two players out of the list of all-time greats who had played in the 70s that kind of stood above the rest in terms of growing the league or kind of you know putting a name to a face in, in terms of the league yeah, absolutely, and and there's a, a a very good reason why the title of my book includes the name Dr. J and Pistol Pete, and the the image on the front cover is George Gervin, and none of those three were the best player in the league in the '70s. Um, mm-hmm. Kareem was clearly the best player in the league, but I don't know that, and I think I, I really like how you put it. I don't know that he did a lot to grow the league. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, as you mentioned, he wasn't a great interview. Um, he not only rubs people the wrong way because he's kind of terse in his interviews and kind of forces his way out of Milwaukee, but he's also Muslim. And mm-hmm. uh, at that time, again, not only is he African-American, but he's, he's Muslim uh, in, a, in a you know largely Christian nation in the 70s. And one that in, in the you know, mid-70s is going through a religious revival. They, they elect Jimmy Carter in 1976. And so having a, an African-American Muslim who doesn't like to speak much who wears goggles, he looks a little strange on the mm-hmm. court. Like, all of these things kind of conspire against Kareem. So, the to me, the two players, and they both are in the title, that that really helped bring attention to the league were Pistol Pete Maravich and, and Dr. J. Julius Irving. So, Maravich appeals, obviously, to, to white fan base. Um, he is able to kind of be the face of two Southern franchises, the the Hawks and then the New Orleans Jazz, when they're they're founded. And he's put in, in really two two awkward spots. When he comes into the Hawks, they're a really good team, and he is expected by the fans to kind of take them to the next level. But he really upsets the um, kind of the team chemistry 
the team core. And it's really hard to, uh, to equate that to a modern situation, but I think it was the fear that, you know, for example, that when Kevin Durant went to the Warriors, mm-hmm. that he would upset this, this great team, and obviously that didn't happen. But that's kind of what, to a lesser extent, Pistol Pete actually did to the Hawks. Uh, but but he does drive a lot of interest. He's a he's a white player. He'd been a almost a legend in college, you know, averaging over 40 points a game as a senior. And so he really drives a lot of interest in the league. Uh, but then he fizzles out, and he has some injuries, and, and he's not uh, ever the player that he was supposed to be. Now, the, the player who is, although he doesn't join the league until 1976, is Julius Irving. Mm-hmm. And Irving really becomes, you know, he was the face of the ABA. And, uh, you know, a great what if, you know, you talk about you could compare players from generations for hours. Uh, you could play the what if game with, with Dr. J for hours. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in 1972, he almost joined the Hawks with Pete Maravich. And then when that deal fell through, he almost joined the Bucks with Kareem. And imagine a team, you know, you talk about modern super teams. Imagine a team that started Oscar Robertson at point guard, Julius Irving at small forward, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at center. (laughs) That's, you know, that's a dominant team. Um, But Irving doesn't join the league until 76, but he he really drives the late 70s and becomes kind of this symbol of pro basketball. And and the NBA couldn't have asked for a better ambassador at that point. He's not only, um, you know, he's an African-American player, obviously, uh, he's very well spoken. He's very, very intelligent. Uh, he understands the marketing aspect of this, and, and you know, in some ways, he reminds me of LeBron James in that way. Mm-hmm. That he's very cognizant. Um, obviously, they didn't use the word his brand, but if they had, Dr. J would have known his brand uh, in the in the 1970s, and he actually does today in the in the 2010s. But Dr. J was really that force. Uh, it's a shame looking back that he was only in the league for four years in the NBA, and really his prime was spent in a league that even fewer eyeballs got on, and that was the ABA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there, there is a great book that um, I think I'm halfway through by Terry Pluto about the, the ABA, and it really does a great job of kind of talking about just how good Dr. J was and, and kind of the interesting aspects of the ABA, and obviously they were the ones who came up with the three-point line that, that gets introduced into the NBA in the, fall, in the 79-80 season, but I think it's great how there's so many stars, so many various stars who play different kinds of style of play in the 70s. Dr. J, Pistol P, Kareem, Bill Walton, all these guys. Um, and I think it's just so great that you took the time to research and, and write this book about the 1970s, or the NBA in the 1970s, I should say, because it's one of those decades that has a lot of parody, so it uh, directly kind of clashes with, with this era, you know, the concerns about parody now. Um but has all these unique stars and, you know, each of them take a different approach to the game, both on and off the court, the ABA merger, the three-point line, these, you know, building blocks for the modern NBA and obviously within the 80s with Magic and Bird and, and the Lakers and Celtics kind of, you know, bring the NBA to a whole nother level. But, you know, those building blocks were placed in the 70s and you still had a lot of great stars in the 70s, even though the league kind of did suffer with popularity issues from time to time during the decade. But uh, Adam, I'd love to thank you for joining uh, us on the 94 Feet Report podcast. It's great to talk about the 1970s, such an interesting decade in NBA history that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, before you go, I think it'd be great if you could throw out where people can follow you on social media. And of course, we're talking about your book, so where they can uh, buy the book. Yes, yeah, so the, the book's available on Amazon. Uh, there's a hardback uh, cover out now. A Kindle edition is supposed to be here soon. Uh, that's probably the easiest way to, uh, to order the book. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Adam Cribbley. And if you can't spell that, probably easiest way is if you go to hashtag 70sNBA. Uh, I've been posting a lot of stuff about the last three months, probably almost every day, posting some little tidbit, some little nugget from the NBA in the 1970s. So 
Uh, not everything could make the book, and if you go to hashtag 70sNBA, you can follow along with all the, the fun stories that some did and some didn't make the, the final cut. So, uh, yeah, Eric, I appreciate being on, and, uh, and thank you again for having me. Well, thank you, and everyone go and follow Adam and, and buy his book, Tall Tales and Short Shorts, Dr. J, Pistol Pete, and the Birth of the Modern MBA. So it was great talking to Adam Cribley, author of Tall Tales and Short Shorts, uh, Pistol Pete, Dr. J, and the Birth of the Modern MBA, uh, a book that I'm extremely excited to look forward to reading um, because I want to learn more about the, the 70s and then the NBA in the 70s, the various stars that played there, the style of play, and then of course the popularity concerns and obviously the parody in the league and so many interesting facets that w- went into the 1970s in the NBA that I don't, I don't think people talked about enough. Um, this has been another episode of the 94 Feet Report. I'm your host, as always, Eric Spropolis. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Eric Spiros. Follow the, the site on Twitter at the 94 Feet Report because, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this podcast, we are transforming this podcast into a full-fledged website with other articles and other podcasts included. So I've been rounding up a team of writers and NBA fans and other podcasters and editors, and we will be launching July 1st at 12 uh, at midnight Eastern Standard Time. When Basically, when the start of free agency, we will be launching our website the 94 feet report so follow us on twitter and follow me on twitter for information about that launch as well and make sure to follow us there to get all the information and obviously you know track our content coming july 1st i want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of the 94 feet report basketball podcast hope you guys have a great week uh before free agency starts in in just a couple of days take care